state reaching into British society took a shocking turn last month. Hong Kongers held a peaceful demonstration outside the Chinese consulate in Manchester on the 18th of October, and that coincided with Xi Jinping's assertion of power at the party congress in Beijing. Chinese consular officials escalated the protest by tearing down images of Xi Jinping displayed by the protesters. The Hong Kong protester Bob Chan was set upon by masked Chinese men and physically dragged into the grounds of the consulate. A video of the incident shows the violence of the assault. Bob Chan was beaten and kicked. One photo shows a Chinese official tugging his head back while another appears to be trying to gouge at his eyes. The official pulling his hair was publicly identified remarkably as the Chinese Consul General Zhang Yuan. After initial denials were disproved by the video clip, Zhang told Chinese state media that he was merely doing his duty. Greater Manchester Police have launched an investigation into the assault. And here's MP Ian Duncan Smith speaking in Parliament. This is the Consul General, let alone the others that were there. So I, like many others, uh, members of IPAC and others within this house, have worked together on helping Hong Kong refugees. And I credit the government in the work that they have done to get them over here on the BNOs. But I now urge the government to be much, much clearer than just using diplomatic language. I urge the government to make it clear in the light of this new evidence that it's not just unacceptable that any consulate individual should have taken part in anything like this, but that any consulate individual who has proved to have been one of the perpetrators of this outrageous and violent attack on Mr. Chen will be made persona non grata immediately and sent back to China. The government has the diplomatic power to dismiss them. And we'll hear from Lord David Alton, who's also active in the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. It's about the Chinese Communist Party believing it's above the law and can act with impunity on British soil. It is about the importation of CCP brutality, which has so disfigured the lives of the peoples of Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Tibet, Taiwan, and Chinese citizens who have dared to question the tyranny of the one-party state. And it's also about the contagious spread of CCP cadres whether intimidating students on our campuses, subverting institutions, or even, as our intelligence agency has pointed out, CCP spies working within the precincts of our parliament. My Lords, the key question for the Minister tonight is, once this investigation, and we all welcome the work that is being done by the Greater Manchester Police Force, once that has been completed, will Consul General Zhen Shi Yuan Consul Gao Lianjia, Councillor Chen Wai, and Deputy Consul General Fan Yingji, who were all directly in attacking peaceful protesters in Manchester. If the investigation shows that, will the government ensure that they will be treated as persona non grata forthwith and told to pack their bags? To do anything less, my lords, would devalue the currency of our belief in free speech 
and the right to protection while peacefully expressing dissent. Yeah, yeah. The British government response so far has been lukewarm. They are waiting for the inquiry to conclude. Lord Alton referred there to the Chinese consular officials being above the law, acting with impunity, the importation of CCP brutality. And those are the areas that we're going to discuss today with our guest, Laura Hearth. Welcome, Laura. Now, Laura is working for Safeguard Defenders, who have just produced an excellent report on China's transnational policing. Laura is campaign director at Safeguard Defenders, and it's a human rights NGO that undertakes and supports local activities for the protection of human rights, the promotion of the rule of law, and enhancement of local civil society. Focused on the PRC, it also leads efforts to counter growing transnational repression by the CCP around the world through both direct actions and extensive global advocacy efforts at all policy levels. And Laura also coordinates the global Magnitsky campaign of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China and acts as advisor to Hong Kong Watch. Previously a contributor to the Hong Kong-based Apple Daily's English edition, Laura regularly writes in Italian outlets and has co-authored a synopsis report to expose and counter Chinese Communist Party malign influence operations in Italy. Uh, thank you, uh, Kate, for the introduction. Uh, Laura, if I may uh, start the uh, conversation with this question, uh, what uh, do you think should be the response uh, to the attack on Bob and what should the British government do in this case? Thank you, Robin, and thank you, Kate. Thank you so much for, for having me and, and talking about this issue of growing CCP transnational repression around the world. Um, before responding to your question, allow me to recall for a second um, Jimmy Lai, because it's his birthday today as, as we are recording this. Um, obviously, he's in prison, the, the, the former owner and, and editor of uh, Hong Kong's Apple Daily. And so I think it is a good moment in time to, you know, to, to remind viewers and listeners of him, of his faith, and the so many others that are languishing in Hong Kong jails just for trying to express, you know, to, to enjoy their freedom of expression, of protest, uh, for upholding human rights and the rule of law. So I just um, wanted to start with that. Um, they are the heroes in this story. And I think what happened in Manchester um, from the videos we just saw and, and the clips just highlights how much what they stood up for, what they tried to defend, what they tried to uh, halt from happening in Hong Kong, unfortunately, is rapidly spreading across the world because the Chinese Communist Party regime is just not stopping at its own borders or what it considers its own borders, um, but is trying to export this transnational repression, this cracking down on dissent, these attempts to silence people to instill fear in people everywhere they may be. And I think the Manchester incident obviously highlights that in a very frightening and striking way. Um, it, it shows the brutal disdain of Chinese officials. Let's remember, these are consul, consulate officials. The consul general was involved 
and publicly stated on British television, inviting the British television to come and interview him and publicly stating without any shame that he thinks it is his duty to brutally and violently harass Hong Kong protesters or any protesters for that matter. So it just shows their disdain for the rule of law, for the laws of other countries, for the territorial sovereignty of other countries, for human rights. Um, and he did all this, you know, in front of cameras, in front of British police officers present. Um, and it is a shocking, shocking development, although not surprising, because I think a lot of activists, dissidents, people that managed to flee that atrocious regimes and, and, and their crimes against humanity, they've been dealing with this for a long time. So in an unfortunate way, and I'm, I'm very sorry for Bob that he had to go through this, but in an unfortunate way, I think it also is useful in highlighting how what these activists have been saying for so long, it's not some invention. This is very real. And so it helps maybe to, to have authorities in democratic nations understand how the PRC is no longer just a foreign policy issue. And it took them long enough to recognize uh, that the PRC is a foreign policy issue, is a threat to the international rules-based order, but it is also a full-blown domestic threat in each of our countries um, for people like us having this conversation, but especially for those people that managed to flee um, the regime. So I think we always have to, when it comes to responses, we also always have to remember that we are countries that believe in the rule of law. So there are procedures to be followed. I think it makes sense um, under those procedures that you know authorities await the full investigation. Obviously, the video evidence is um, is there. It is very difficult to to deny it. There's the public admission of the consul general himself. But I do hope that, you know, the calls raised by various members of parliament, uh, such as Sir Ian Lincoln-Smith and Lord David Alton, will be followed once that investigation is completed and that these persons will be declared persona non grata and sent back to China. Um, we've also yesterday seen from ABC that one of the persons involved, the diplomatic officials involved, had already been suspected of being involved in similar episodes, uh, an attack at a Taiwanese um, event in Fiji a couple of years back. So this is clearly, let's say, the way they like to operate and they think they can operate with impunity in our countries. So it's time to, to, to stop that. And, and it's just one iteration of the same kind of transnational repression that we obviously talked about in our report 110 overseas, China's transnational policing gone wild. Um, and and I, I think we can go into the findings of that report um, as, as we move forward in this conversation. Thank you, Laura. And I wonder if you could talk about um, a new development that uh, that we've just heard about from the European Court of Human Rights, which is uh, a terrific testimony to the strength of the work and the, as you say, the, the dawning acknowledgement that, uh, that CCP operations present uh, a threat well beyond PRC borders. Mm -hmm. Yes, so the, the news from the European Court of Human Rights is something that we have long awaited, that um, I'm not a religious person, but I can say we have prayed for that this, this would happen. Um, 
So the CCP PRC authorities have been setting up and quite explicitly talking about this, right? Sending messages publicly to people in press conferences, um, public press conferences, that you know they will chase people till the end of the world, um, that till the end of the earth, that people are not safe anywhere. This has been a very effective tool in silencing people, in again instilling that sense of fear that they are not safe anywhere um, that their family members back in China or Hong Kong may be targeted, that they may be repatriated against their will. And obviously the PRC uses um, a series of methodologies to do that. Uh, one of those are so the so-called legal weapons, uh, which they speak about quite, quite openly. Um, those consist, for example, obviously in the extraterritorial provisions in the national security laws, both the one imposed on Hong Kong and those already present in, in the procedural and criminal codes in mainland China. Um, and, you know, one of the things they've always stated and very much pursued over the past years is the signing of bilateral extradition treaties. Because one, the presence of those treaties, the mere presence of those treaties is enough to, to make people fearful of freely expressing themselves, of freely demonstrating, of freely moving across, for example, the European continent, where at least 10 countries still have active extradition treaties with China. And I just wish to highlight how, for example, the intelligence services in Denmark and the foreign office in the UK have warned activists and even members of parliament who are critical of the Chinese Communist Party of traveling to countries with active extradition treaties with mainland China or Hong Kong. Now that includes, for example, Belgium, all the European institutions, most of European institutions are hosted in Brussels. So this implies a very significant limit to the freedom of movement that these people would have only because that extradition treaty exists. Now, whereas the European Parliament activists, uh, members of national parliaments have been calling for the suspension of those extradition treaties for a long time, many European governments have been, I would say, a bit cowardice in not doing that, not wanting to do that, not to want to provoke uh, PRC authorities. Now, the European Court of Human Rights has just established in a sentence that will go into effect on January 6th, that basically all extraditions to China would represent a violation of Article 3 of the European Convention of Human Rights. That article prohibits extraditing people um, to countries where they may be at risk of torture or other forms of inhumane treatment. And what the court does is basically instituting a blanket ban for anyone risking extradition to China because it says that the general condition and the overall use of torture and other forms of maltreatment within its detention and penitentiary system is so generalized that this represents a general situation of violence. So that is, I think, the best rebuttal to the PRC and the CCP propaganda that we've continuously seen over the past years, where it tries to say that the signing of extradition treaties with all these countries, including European ones, you know, shows the confidence of the international community in the PRC's rule of law. And this, this, this sentence really is a denial of that propaganda uh, and is the best measure of protection that we could hope for, for people facing that particular um, threat from CCP authorities. Obviously, as we know, there's other, other threats and um, 
you know, the, the illegal means, the extrajudicial means that the PRC is using to pursue people abroad. But um, I think thanks in part to, to our report, 110 overseas, also that we are seeing is increasingly being dealt with and recognized by governments across the world. And obviously we'll keep working um, to, to make sure that that kind of protection becomes wider and wider for people everywhere. And, uh, and I think that's consistent also with the pushback that we've seen following your report um, to the existence of these Chinese police stations in different European countries, because the UK government has introduced that it's looking at a new security act. Um, the British government has said that it will step up work to counter the transnational repression. Um, and they've talked about um, the knowledge of three such police stations, undeclared police stations in the UK, um, according to the, the security minister, two in London, in Hendon and in Croydon and in Glasgow. Um, and the Netherlands, too, has has made statements about this, saying the Dutch government is investigating um, police stations. Canada, too, I think Chile as well. So so various governments have have finally now been been looking at this issue and seeking to to counter that issue and i noticed that um the international campaign for tibet released a port a report saying that just in the last few months tibetan exiles have been receiving um calls often rather threatening in nature from unknown uh people probably linked to the United Front Work Department. So again, consistent um, and evidence of what, what people have experienced for some time in the diaspora, in the Uyghur diaspora, in the Tibetan diaspora, and uh, among Hong Kongers too, to, to varying effect. Uh, following what Kate and what Laura just mentioned, I have a, a couple of questions. Um, are these uh, tactics meant only for Chinese exiles or is it also meant for Chinese Hong Kongers, uh, uh, Tibetans, East Turkestanis, Southern Mongolians? Or is it also meant for those who've got American or Canadian passports but are originally from, from these uh, countries and these occupied uh, countries as well? So your, your thoughts on this? So we found exclusively on the basis of Chinese authorities' own accounts, uh, be it on their websites or on um, in local media reports, um, in Chinese or even on the websites of these associations tied to the stations across the world, we found at least 54 of such um, so-called overseas police service centers being set up in at least 30 countries. Now, the first thing is, this is obviously but one iteration of the kind of transnational repression efforts and transnational policing efforts that we've seen growing over the past years, but definitely a much a very worrying one, especially because somehow this appears to have gone unnoticed by the authorities in these 30 countries, given that we had not seen any reaction and given that the reaction that we've seen so far uh, especially at the beginning, seem to be one of surprise, despite the fact that some of these stations have been around since at least 2018. So that's almost four years now um, today. 
So obviously, and, and thank you for, for showing the map. So these are the stations we identified, again, exclusively on the basis of the accounts of the authorities themselves. There might be more. There probably are more. There are indications that also other cities and counties, uh, specifically from Fujian and Zhejiang province, have been setting up stations. For example, one was identified possibly set up by Wenzhou in, um, in Sydney, in Australia. So we, we might just be looking at the tip of the iceberg here. Um, these stations had not been declared to local authorities, to, to governments or local authorities in any of the countries they had been set up. There is one um, striking, I would say, um, outlier in that affirmation because I found evidence that Roman police officers were present at the unveiling of the uh, one of the stations in Rome in 2018. Um, video evidence, actually, again, um, kindly provided by the Chinese uh, authorities themselves. Obviously, that is worrying, and it just goes to show in that particular case how the PRC authorities really use any kind of judicial or police cooperation agreement or even loose, you know, memorandum of understanding. Anything we give them, they will use it to further their goals of transnational repression around the world. In this case, they used the joint police patrols uh, that were set up um, purportedly, according to the Chinese authorities, to assist Chinese tourists in, in some of the biggest cities in Italy. But behind the scenes, obviously, they were also setting up these kind of stations uh, and, and we are pretty sure that those officials might have been involved in other activities as well. So that is something that just shows you if, if you give them a finger, they will really take the arm. And again, it goes to highlight how many authorities in Europe still and in other countries are reluctant to recognize the domestic threat that these kind of activities, these kind of agreements, um, the CCP regime presents also for them. But again, if we want to look at some of the reactions that have come out since uh, we published the report, and, and really we have also to thank, you know, media, local media in all of these countries where we found stations that have been working on this and reporting on this, um, digging deeper into the, the local realities since, since we came out with our report um, that have really helped put this on the map, as well as obviously members of parliament who have been very vocal about these, um, these issues. So we know investigations are ongoing in Canada, in Chile, in the Czech Republic, in Germany, in Ireland, um, in Portugal, Spain, Sweden, the Netherlands, United Kingdom, and the United States of America. Um, so, so we are starting to see really um, a coordinated response, I would say, from these governments. Authorities in the Netherlands, Germany, and Ireland have also clearly stated that these stations are fully illegal. The Netherlands and Ireland have ordered them shut. So those are all, um, I would say, perfect and, and great initial responses. Obviously, what we do want those governments to do is to investigate further because just shutting down the station is not going to end the kind of operations that they are involved in. Chinese authorities publicly stated, in, in particular the, the Fuzhou Public Security Bureau, that they set up these stations in cooperation with the United Frontwork Department that you mentioned before, Kate. 
um, that overlaps with the findings we have when we compare the addresses listed by the by the authorities with known United Front organizations in those um, those places. We found that indeed the kind of network that they have been use, using um, to do this are associations which may be called chambers of commerce, uh, hometown associations, friendship associations, and what you have it. They have been using that existing network to kind of build this extra function on uh, of the police stations to resolutely crack down on crime, monitor in a way, uh, measure the sentiment of public opinion in the overseas community, um, and assist the authorities back home with the pursuit of, of fugitives. I also need to add that we found express evidence of the um, some of these stations being involved in such um, persuasion to return operations taking place on, on European soil. So it, it's obviously very worrying. Um, the, the evidence is damning. Obviously, the PRC authorities have been publicly dismissing these claims. Uh, I would say their dismissals at some point are, are fairly ridiculous because one, they do actually admit to the fact that Yes, these stations are there. These service centers are there. They're being used for operations, you know, such as renewal of passports, driver's licenses, and so on. Now, one, admitting that you are admitting to an illegal operation, because, again, you cannot just set up any service center of that kind, providing consular services without declaring that to the authorities and having authorization to do that. But I think a lot of people in the community actually also know that, for example, what seems like an innocent procedure, such as the renewal of passports, very often is not as innocent because it might be used to actually say, oh, we're not going to do that for you. You will have to go back to China if you want your passport renewed or if you want your passport renewed, you, we want you to do this, this and this and this. Um, so even those innocent looking illegal procedures are, are not that innocent. But secondly, in another, you know, blatant lie in a way, the authorities in China now claim that they set these stations up um, in response to dealing with the evident difficulties, you know, during the COVID pandemic, because people could not travel back. So they were setting up these additional services. Now, if you start setting up these stations in 2018, either there is something you knew that we didn't, and I don't think that is the case, but COVID was not around in 2018. So it's clear even in their dismissals of the report um, that they are blatantly lying uh, about what is really going on. And again, the evidence that we found, including video evidence of illegal coercion to return operations taking place specifically, for, for example, in Madrid, Spain, um, that evidence is damning. Um, they put that up. So it's very hard to, to dismiss that. And so we hope that governments will continue to investigate we also hope that they will start setting up adequate reporting and protection mechanisms for the communities most at risk. Those communities include all overseas Chinese people, indeed holding different passports. Maybe, you know, we've heard it again in, in the speech of, of Xi Jinping uh, at the National Congress, how they consider anyone of Chinese descent. They, they still consider them as Chinese. They're, they're somehow their property, uh, no matter what nationality those, those people hold. Um, they present risks to... Tibetan communities, Uyghur communities, Southern Mongolian communities, Hong Kong communities. And I think the longer this goes on, they will present a risk to, to anyone who's critical of the Chinese regime um, anywhere in the world, really. So we want adequate reporting and protection mechanisms set up. We want governments to review their judicial and police cooperation agreements 
with PRC authorities because they might be conducive to this kind of operations. And also they help to instill fear in the hearts of those communities most at risk abroad who may be fearful of approaching local authorities or law enforcement if they know that law enforcement agency is also cooperating with agencies back in the PRC. We would very much like to see coordinated sanctions and visa restrictions on any official uh, Chinese officials implicated in these kind of operations. In March of this year, the US already announced such visa restrictions. So we really would like to see that happen in a coordinated fashion across um, at least the democratic world. Um, and I think once we will see all that happening, really see a whole of government approach where all parts of government, so judiciary, law enforcement, interior ministries, homeland ministries, and foreign affairs ministries are working together to counter this domestic threat. That's, I think, when we will start being able to actually counter everything that's going on. So they are actually, the um, United Front is actually targeting, let's say, uh, overseas Chinese. But what passport do these Chinese have? Is it only a Chinese passport or are they also targeting Chinese who've got American passports or European passports? And is, does the same thing hold good for Tibetans um, or Uyghurs for that matter? Yeah, they're, they're targeting everyone. They, they consider irrespective, them. Irrespective of which passport they're holding. Yes. They, as I said, they... they there's this weird concept where they kind of consider these people their property somehow. Right. Uh, they have to be yeah. obedient. Uh, it's really part of this wider crackdown on on this scent, on this, um, you know, the, they're exporting this this climate of political terror from inside mm. China mm. across the world, and and it's um, it's it's daunting to see. Um, how, how they they conceive this and how they think they somehow have the right, right, yes. or even the duty. I mean, as the consul general in, in in Manchester said, they consider it their duty, duty, to yes. this to yes. police these people, to 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 repress these people, to control these people. Um, right. Yeah. But then, doesn't it get into a legal tussle because if a Chinese has taken, uh, you know, taken an American passport, then he or she is legally an American citizen? No? So mm -hmm. how doesn't the the international law on that front get into the picture? I mean, it depends. Uh, I can rephrase it a bit because one of the things we do want to avoid, like everyone who's a resident on on any soil, right, regardless of the passport they hold, they are owed the same kind of protection okay. so on the one hand we have the chinese government that thinks it can do whatever it wants mm -hmm. uh, regardless of passports i mean they kidnap they, they they put foreigners in jail they hold foreigners hostage they kidnap people with foreign passports from foreign soil and bring them back to china uh, so obviously that that is uh, i would say aggravating in in a way um that should put us all on on you know a red alert for for everyone anywhere in the world but it would be wrong to say if someone, you know, if someone, for example, is a refugee, think about all the Hong Kongers, even those that have, you know, maybe no BNO passports, but somehow they're refugees, they got asylum in, in the UK or in other countries, um, asylum seekers from Xinjiang, so many others, we all owe them the exact same protection and enjoyment of rights and freedoms that we all have. Um, so regardless of what the Chinese Communist Party thinks it can or cannot do, uh, regardless of nationality. And I think one of the things maybe why governments have so long underestimated this um, 
we see it with these large Chinese overseas communities, they kind of think they can set up the state within the state, right? So they, they, they think, and it's among their tasks, um, as, as said, for these overseas police service centers to kind of monitor the sentiment, right? To kind of police these communities. Um, I think one of the reasons maybe that has been able to go on for so long is that I, 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 I know it's a grave accusation, but sometimes it feels like there's some kind of subconscious racism within our establishment, if that makes sense, as if these people somehow, you know, are to be treated differently from all other citizens, from all other residents. Um, how, you know, the Chinese Communist Party actually does have a right to somehow, you know, exert its control over these communities. And obviously that needs to stop. And I think there's a growing awareness that that needs to stop. Um, but I would not make a distinction between, you know, who holds which passport. Every, human rights are universal. Um, it doesn't matter what the Chinese Communist Party wants to make of it or how they want to redefine human rights, how they want to redefine the rule of law, how they want to redefine territorial sovereignty where it counts only when, you know, we're talking about China, but apparently not about any other country because they just do what they want. Um, so, yeah, I, I would not make that distinction um the violation is there regardless of what passport people hold so laura has your report also touched upon uh, such facilities in india or any other country in the sark region so we haven't found any evidence so far uh, of these kind of overseas police service centers being set up in india um now we do wish to underline that this does not mean by, by no means that no transnational repression activities from the Chinese Communist Party are ongoing in India. The two provinces that we looked at specifically for this report, um, Zhejiang and, and Fujian, obviously appear to have been the most active in setting up these centers. But as said before, they relied on existing networks of United Front Work Department uh, organizations around the world specifically tied to their provinces, so overseas communities from Fuzhou and, and, and Zhejiang in, in particular, but by no means um, I think the fact that we did not find stations, does that mean that there is no such activity present? So we do put we do want to put all authorities in all countries on, on high alert for these kind of activities taking place everywhere. Um, what is also of note is that in the same report, 110 Overseas, we found a clear distinction between the kind of operations set up in, in, in Europe um, and other parts of, of the world federal way, whereas to Southeast Asia, in general, in particular countries such as Myanmar, Cambodia, um, and Thailand, we did find a station in Cambodia, by the way, um, how these provinces at a certain point kind of issued a blanket ban for Chinese nationals um, from those provinces to be present in those countries. So we call those the nine forbidden countries in the, in the report. Basically, if those people could not demonstrate and obtain an authorization from the local public security bureaus that they had a valid reason um, to be in those countries, they were somehow suspect automatically of being involved in some kind of crimes and so persuaded to return as well. Now, I wish to recall these kind of 
persuasion to return methods being used include threats and harassment to their family members back home or even the wider community. Um, it includes possible prosecution of those family members instead of the person that is abroad. Uh, it includes taking away benefits uh, such as, you know, social benefits or, or schooling for kids and so on. So those, those measures are kind of sweeping. Uh, that blanket ban is obviously very worrying because it just shows how entire communities are somehow being criminalized, seen as criminals and at risk of, of these kind of, of tactics being used against them. Um, and we do believe, you, you may remember that we started the report with the statements from the Chinese Ministry of Public Security, so national authorities, that they had successfully persuaded to return 230,000 individuals between July 2021, uh, between April 2021 and July of this year alone, under this single campaign to combat telecom fraud. Um, those are huge numbers, and we do believe we don't have an exact breakdown, but all evidence points to the fact that the majority of these people were coerced, forced to return from um, Southeast Asian countries. So there's definitely much more attention to be paid to those countries. Um, also because in previous reports, and I do wish to highlight and invite people who are interested in this to go and look at our report, Involuntary Returns, which we published in January of this year, and which kind of maps and explains uh, the methodologies, the extrajudicial methodology used by the Chinese Communist Party to hunt people uh, abroad. We often find that in, in many of those countries, there is also some kind of tacit uh, complicity with the local authorities, which obviously put people there at additional risk. And I'm thinking in particular of Uyghurs, Tibetans, um, and other communities, persecuted communities within China. Um, we have instances of, of, of kidnappings taking place which, by the way, the body in charge of these transnational policing operations in China, the National Commission of Supervision, which is nothing but a state front from the, for the Central Commission of Disciplinary Inspection, which is controlled by the CCP's Politburo, um, wrote in 2018 in an official written legal interpretation that kidnapping is an authorized form of bringing people back to China if no other means work. So just to give you an idea of the kind of um, gangster techniques, I think, we, we should define them. The CCP thinks it's, it's authorized to use, um, for example, Swedish citizen Wei Minhai was kidnapped from Thailand into China years ago, is still being hide, still hidden, still disappeared within China. We don't know what he's gone through. I mean, we can only presume extensive torture and, and inhumane treatment. Um, but those kind of operations are taking place and it's pretty clear, for example, that the Thai authorities to some extent are complicit in such operations. There's other instances of kidnappings uh, taking place from Thailand, um, which you can read in the report Involuntary Returns, where it's clear that the local authorities, local law enforcement was kind of complicit in these operations. Um, but by no means does this happen only in Southeast Asia. There's been reports of kidnappings taking place in Australia and in other places in the world. So these kind of techniques, these extrajudicial techniques are really far reaching and, and very scary. And, and again, it explains why so many people, even when they have managed to flee China, are so afraid to speak up because they do not feel safe anywhere. And, and that's really as safeguard defenders 
why we put out these kind of reports and why other human rights organizations put these out so we can start to build those protection mechanisms that are necessary um, for people to feel free and really enjoy their freedoms, their rights, uh, once they manage to flee that regime. And just to just to add to that, the Swedish bookseller was uh, actually with two diplomats, I believe, on a train when he was kidnapped. So it was um, the Chinese authorities later accused the diplomats of even violating laws themselves, which was quite remar remarkable. I just wanted to comment on the issue of uh, China's transnational policing in India um, to go back a, a full decade when China launched a major operation targeting Tibetans who were attending Dalai Lama teachings in Bodh Gaya, which is the place where the Buddha was enlightened. It's a sacred pilgrimage place. And for decades, thousands of Tibetans had been able to travel from Tibet, um, many of them legally on Chinese passports, to attend teachings of their religious leader. But in 2012, and this was under the leadership of the then uh, party boss of the Tibet Autonomous Region, Chen Guo, who then went on to serve in Xinjiang as party secretary um, and preside over the, the brutality of the camps there in, in Xinjiang. They launched a massive operation scrutinizing and surveilling Tibetans who were attending the Dalai Lama teachings. And then when they attempted to travel back home, they were arrested. They were held in re-education centers. Uh, they were separated from family and friends. They were effectively disappeared, some of them for, for many months, we believe. And then that began to happen at other um, teachings by the Dalai Lama in India. And also, it, um, the, China extended its reach into Nepal for, for many years too. And I remember being in Bodh Gaya for a teaching of the Dalai Lama in January 2017. And uh, Tibetans who had arrived in Bodh Gaya at tremendous risk, many of them crossing the mountains on foot, uh, many of them coming legally on Chinese passports, um, had received calls from uh, Chinese officials or family members ordering them to return home. Mm -hmm. And um, there was this terrible scenes of Tibetans who had just arrived in Bodh Gaya. Often they'd spent their whole life savings, undergone all of this danger, and they were heartbroken at having to return home. And many of them said to me that, you know, I would face the danger myself, but it's what they would do to my family members. And of course, Tibetans and Uyghurs have long lived under this shadow. And this is one of the most distressing and painful things for the exile diaspora. It's the guilt by association. It's what the Chinese will do to family members, which your report makes clear does to so many others, chi overseas Chinese people from Hong Kong, people from, from Tibet, the Uyghurs. So I think that that's one of the most powerful weapons that, uh, that the CCP uses. So we've we've long known of China's heavy footprint into Nepal. It's sought to delegitimize the Tibetan community 
to undermine their status. It's now very difficult for uh, Tibetans to... Uh, there are thousands of Tibetans who have escaped from Tibet and who are resident in Nepal who, who do not have an acknowledged status which prevents them from... Uh, receiving uh, decent education or in some cases driving license or or ability to travel and we know that uh, also the the Nepalese police have cracked down on peaceful protests by Tibetans in Nepal to a, a, a staggering impact, impact effect so China regards Nepal as part of its 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 own security it sort of extends its uh, its security out from the tibet autonomous region um to to influence nepal and it's uh, it's also wielded its economic heft by funding nepalese police um uh securitizing the border um, and effectively now closing the main gateway into exile for Tibetans that existed for so many decades until the protests spread across Tibet in 2008. Around two and a half thousand, three and a half thousand Tibetans were able to escape into exile from Tibet every year. But uh, the numbers dwindled in 2008 to less than a thousand. Um, last year, there were only around five or six who managed the journey. And at the same time, Tibetans have been isolated and locked into Tibet itself. It's become almost impossible for them to, to travel. So the security operations across the border in Nepal have mm -hmm. played a major part in, in that. Mm -hmm. Kate, can I just make a small comment on that? Can you mm -hmm. imagine what would happen if you've seen how Xi Jinping is now pushing this global security initiative, right? A new standard of cooperation and, and, and so-called security. Um, I think what you just said about what's happening in Nepal is a very good example of what such a global security initiative would actually entail and the danger it poses to all of us. With Skynet is kind of the international arm of Xi Jinping's um, domestic so-called anti-corruption campaign, which has little to do with corruption, obviously, and a lot with repression, um, who said a fugitive is like a kite. Um, by their family members, you're always able to retrieve them, to get them back. Um, so it's not a literal quote because I don't have it in front of me, but I think that that notion, really, that that quote um, sums it up, and, and and everything you say, Kate, sounds so familiar, and is is so incredibly sad. Um, I think for these people, and I think any human being around the world can kind of empathize, can understand that when they grab your family, um, that when they threaten your family, when they hurt your family. Um, there is little um, we wouldn't do to try to save those family members uh, from, from whatever is happening to them. And so I think a lot of people can understand what a powerful weapon this is to force people to return to China, even at very great personal risk. Um, and, and the fact that they are using this, that they basically inscribe this in law as a method 
to, to be used, an extrajudicial method to be used, um, again, shows the disdain, one, for, for other countries' territorial sovereignty, for human rights, but I would say also the profound disdain for humanity, for any human basic values in and of itself. So thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. Yeah,